Blog Talk Radio. So, when was the last time you thought about your nervous system? Probably never, if nothing ever went wrong with it. But what if something did go wrong? Today we're going to learn a little bit about what can go wrong for technology users. But first, a little background. The nervous system has sometimes been referred to as the superhighway of the brain. Your nerves control both voluntary and involuntary processes. For instance, we can consciously decide to lift our arm or tap our foot, but we don't even need to think about breathing, keeping our heart beating, or digesting our meals. We use voluntary nervous system when we interact with computer keyboards, iPads, smartphones, or games. However, the nerves are sometimes crowded by other tissues in the body. Sometimes they have to go through tunnels or they are stretched around bones. And if those tissues surrounding your nerves crowd them for any number of reasons, this can result in numbness, tingling, pain, or injury. And if you've ever had a nerve injury, you know just exactly how frustrating it can be because they take a long time to heal. Hello, I'm Deborah Quilter, and welcome to RSI Help Radio, the show that brings you the latest news and information about repetitive strain injury. Today we're going to hear from one of our favorite guests, Dr. Robert Markison. Dr. Markison has been a hand surgeon for nearly 40 years and is clinical professor of surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. Welcome, Dr. Markison, again. Well, thank you, and thank you for all that you do for the now and for the future of hand-intensive humans. And we don't want to end up squirrels on digital squirrel wheels and wear our fingers and upper limbs to the bones. So uh, you're fighting the good fight, and kudos to you. (laughs) Or our nerves. Uh, But anyway, we're talking in the studio a little bit before the show, and you were telling me something really interesting. So before we get into the actual most common nerve injuries, which we're going to go through, um, let's talk a little bit about what you were saying about the proper clinical exam and also vis-a-vis the aging workforce population that is now at computers. Great. Okay. Well, listen, here's the point. We've got a hurried time in modern medicine. There are various reasons and forces behind that. But 90-plus percent of patients I see in or out of workers' compensation claims have been inadequately examined for reasons of time. The 10-minute exam, the doctor's seen the nerve conduction studies, comes in the room, pre, prefigured conclusion, you need a carpal tunnel release, let's go, let's go for it. If it fails, it's your fault. As opposed to really carefully examining clinical neurological exam, neck to fingertips, finding out what's wrong, what conditions might coincide, what non-surgical remedies might serve, how ergonomics fit in, and so on. So the detailed examination can take 45 to 60 minutes, often under or unreimbursed in modern medicine, but nonetheless requires a fairly informed examiner, preferably in this case a board, currently board-certified hand surgeon. And there aren't a ton of us, but those who are in the field love anatomy and anatomical variation and patients themselves and want to keep them out of trouble. But the And what you're talking medical- about is a clinical exam where you're actually touching someone. It's not doing an, an EMG, which is an electronic exam where they place um, little electrodes on your body and sense the nerve that way, right? So you're, we're right. talking it's about still, a that, clinical that exam. Certainly, that certainly has a place, but the good old-fashioned clinical exam where the doctor's not distracted typing on a laptop or mobile device to do an electronic health record and please the government's mandate 
to do so, but rather looking at, thinking about, physically examining the patient, clinical neurological exam from neck to fingertips, considering any and all possible abnormalities, starting in brain, going through the cervical spine and brachial plexus, and then peripheral nerves in the upper limbs, and considering anything that might be simply remediable and also in the aging workforce that may have bypassed any possible savings or hope of retirement. They're on two, three, or four drugs, maybe statins for cholesterol, maybe they've got other conditions, prediabetes, diabetes, thyroid disease, and so on. So you're thinking of a constellation of things, the metabolic machine that makes us run, the endocrine system that makes our glands and three trillion cells happy, and all of this stuff is knitted together and must be considered in the logically connectable domains in and out of the limb. So if we're talking about the most common nerve injury, um, what would that be? And I've heard you say twice now, and this is something that I'm really picky about as well, neck to fingertip as opposed to fingertip to neck. Why is it so important that we're looking at the neck? Well, it's important that we be, before that, obviously we're looking at brain and we have aging stroke victims who might have modest capacity. We're looking at uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. We're looking at Parkinson's and tremor. We're looking at any and other, any neurologic disorder, including cognitive loss within presenile dementia, Alzheimer's, and so on. So we're looking at brain, including post-traumatic uh, stress disorder and brain-injured returning soldiers and people who've fallen down the steps, so on. That's really, really important. So then we go on to the neck because the neck is a major processing center. The head's a bowling ball resting on an unstable strut called neck. You can use it as a bank account for stress and tighten up muscles and straighten up the neck where it should have a gentle, what we call, lordotic curvature. And C5-6, cervical 5 and 6, and other vertebral levels can be affected such that you can radiate some numbness or tingling or pain or weakness into the upper limbs called cervical radiculopathy. That'll masquerade as and or coincide with a peripheral entrapment neuropathy. So, yes, certainly check the neck. And checking so the neck what you're is saying not, basically is that if something goes wrong with those upper cervicals, uh, the vertebra in the, in the neck, they can pinch and lead to numbness and tingling all the way down to the fingertips which might be That's misdiagnosed right. for something else. Exactly. It, it must start with a brain exam consideration of central nervous system, then go on to the neck to see if there is a contribution from neck. And obviously we're in a mm-hmm. field of gravity lifelong, and they're like a cereal box allow for some, for some settling during shipment, which can be narrowing of intervertebral spaces and the consequence and the windows foramina through which the nerves pass such that you've got some entrapment. It may be tolerable until your head forward, limb forward, palms down, hovering over a mouse or a computer and could be asymptomatic until you go in the yoga studio for downward dog, plank, and headstand and handstand. But then trouble can begin. So uh, the the nature of the neck and how it works and how you examine it, uh, including having the patient turn left or right, a gentle compression called axially loaded Spurling's maneuver done gently to see if there's any response and then very gentle palpation of the base of the neck and for nerve roots going through foramina that may be troubled. And then we go into brachial plexus next, but in the neck exam, you've just got to do it. You've got to do it and find out whether you have a double or a multiple crush, so to speak, uh, injury. So that's a very important processing plant 
through through which the roots and trunks and divisions and then cords and then brachial plexus in this braid of brachial plexus. It's all coming from the neck. And the variations in neuroanatomy, even at spine level, are pretty stunning. So what is the most common nerve injury that you see in your practice? Okay, so carpal tunnel probably, or people with self-perceived or incorrectly diagnosed carpal tunnel, but that comes up in the popular lore and the patient consciousness and their wanderings on the Internet vis-a-vis everything that tingles is carpal tunnel to proven otherwise. And, again, I, I kind of gently oppose that because most of the time these people have been not adequ- inadequately examined. But carpal tunnel syndrome besets a fair percent of the population, but the, it's difficult to gather those numbers. We don't have a neurological census in America. In countries with long-term data on carpal tunnel syndrome, we know that it's fairly prevalent whether or not someone's working. And again, not everything that tingles has been tingly because of a work effort. But suffice but to it's say, very we're specific, talking... right? When you're when you're having carpal tunnel, um, it's a very specific tingling in certain fingers that you would feel. Um, right. So I mean, that would be has... numbness and tingling, numbness and tingling in thumb, index, middle, and half the ring finger, exactly. allowing for some variation where you might have more or less tingling in the hand that may awaken you from sleep in the wee hours, midnight to 3 a.m., you shake the hand out, and hopefully that gets you back to sleep. You may wear a splint, hopefully not applied tightly, that keeps the nerve and tendons in a good position. And you hope to wake up and not have tingling during the day, but you might. And then beyond tingling, you could have motor involvement, which means weakness, or worse yet, atrophy, thinning and wasting of the muscle wad as you look at the palm of your hand and look at your thumb. If that's starting to waste away, then there's a fairly urgent problem. Again, it may not be carpal tunnel only, but that's carpal tunnel syndrome for you. And if you think of what's causing it, it could be work effort, could be life, could be diabetes, could be thyroid disease, could be numerous kinds of things, but essentially the nerve gets swollen in the carpal Mm -hmm. tunnel. And why is it swollen? It's a living structure that's being compressed. Why would it swell up if it's being compressed? Answer, you've got a 30 millimeters mercury pressure head of inflow arterial supply, outflow, venous uh, outflow is about 5 millimeters mercury. It's easy to somewhat close off drainage as inflow arterial supply continues. The net effect, more inflow than outflow, swelling. Then it's a vicious cycle within a confined space of carpal tunnel, which is a bony arch on the back and a fibrous roof, which is flexor retinaculum or transverse carpal ligament over top. The nerve itself riding side to side, back and forth, right under that fibrous roof of carpal tunnel, impinged upon beneath it by nine tendons, one for thumb, two per digit equals nine. That's a busy little thoroughfare, back and forth, back and forth. And some people have intrusion by muscle bellies that wrap the tendons, for example, on the near side of the wrist, and they come out as you reach for your caps, caps lock, shift, tab, option, enter, control, return, escape, number, keys, blah, blah, blah. And you can also have intrusion from intrinsic muscles living in the hand as you make a fist. So the lumbricals, Latin for worm, they worm along the tendons, and you you can pack the carpal tunnel that way. So static and dynamic anatomy matter. And it's a question of can you relieve the stress, and if so, how? And is it going to require diagnostics and, and surgery or other things? But from what you're saying, it's um, something that you don't need to rush to surgery for, unless there's severe wasting. 
in the scenery. Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, wasting does push the clock towards a surgical intervention, assuming everything points to carpal tunnel with or without other entrapments on the near side of that. But assuming somebody's been completely properly examined and the isolated problem is carpal tunnel syndrome and you have some some muscle called thenar, T-H-E-N-A-R, wasting, then you're probably going to the OR and doing a minimally invasive uh, carpal tunnel release with hopefully release of any typed fiber tissue uh, at wrist or forearm level called fascia. If that's tight on the near side of the entrance to the carpal tunnel, you release that at the Mm -hmm. same time and you get them back to life and work as quickly as possible. And then what about the next most common complaint that someone would have? What's the next nerve? Yeah, probably probably the next nerve uh, would be, uh, in the periphery, would be ulnar nerve, which can be trapped at the cubital tunnel, cubit Egyptian measure for building pyramids, fingertips to funny bone. And the funny bone or medial epicondyle is in the front of the ulnar nerve at the elbow. And cubital tunnel is tennis elbow. Or golfer's elbow. Well, kind of. Golfer's elbow, medial epicondylitis can coincide with it, but that's not the primary problem. The primary problem is tightness within the little tunnel behind the funny bone, behind the medial epicondyle, and or possible entrapments on the near side before it goes behind that elbow prominence uh, through structures we don't need to name, and or as it goes under fiber tissue called fascia, just beyond the the funny bone, the medial inside, inner elbow, bony prominence. And so that would be cubital tunnel syndrome. Less common downstream of that at wrist level would be ulnar tunnel syndrome. That's a tunnel that's on the superficial side, top side, more palmar than the carpal tunnel. And you can get compression there, especially if you're resting your heel of your hand on a surface like one of these wrist wrist rests or something where you can compress, directly compress the ulnar nerve. And this would be manifest by numbness and tingling in the little finger and probably half the ring finger, sometimes more depending on anatomical variation. And the worst part of it is if you get loss of dexterity because the ulnar nerve serves 15 of 20 small muscles in the hand, and those are the muscles of dexterity and also can confer up to 40% of grip strength and pinch strength and so on. So if you start to get fumbly and lose manipulative dexterity skills and or have numbness and tingling, because you can have pure sensory, meaning pure Mm -hmm. feeling loss, or pure motor ulnar tunnel or cubital tunnel syndrome. And you've got to be ever aware of that. If the nerves are not reaching the violin fingerboard or the computer keys and they're awkward and you can't act, you can't consciously (coughs) position them, then that can be a problem. So then the next and, and third in the line of peripheral entrapments would be radial nerve compression. And most most doctors don't even know what that is and or how to check for it, but the radial nerve is on the top and outer side of the arm, elbow, and near side of forearm. And so it courses over the head of the radius, which is right at the elbow, and then it goes towards the top side of the forearm through a fibromuscular arch, called the arcade of Froch, where it goes into the supinator muscles between superficial and deep. And that means that when you go palm down, you pronate to use a mouse or you're texting or you're mm-hmm. using a computer keyboard, you're potentially tightening up the radial nerve manifest by pain that can 
radiate with pain or numbness or tingling onto the top side of thumb index, middle, and variably more of the hand. And then you get to that arcade of Froch where they have the, poor, the pure motor branch of radial that it's going to start giving you weakness in your ability to lift the thumb, extend or straighten the thumb, index, middle, ring, little. And then you're getting into posterior interosseous entrapment neuropathy, which is a specific motor form of radial entrapment neuropathy. And so I'll see patients who have elbow pain misdiagnosed as tennis elbow, outside outer mm-hmm. elbow pain, and that may coincide, but that's not it. The problem is the twisted pronated palm down limb reaching forward, elbow extension, flexion, is the radial nerves being irritated and, and may be damaged by that constant crocodilian alligator-like palm-down posture. And I so would just like to inter- intercede here that I once saw um, Dr. Markison showed me a video of a cadaver study that he had done. That means a dissection of a, a dead person. And um, he showed what happened when you take your hand and bend the elbow and turn it palm down. And I will never forget this because you could really see how the nerve, which was exposed, was twisted and strained going around the elbow. And so it really impressed upon me that the mere action of putting your palms down for a prolonged period would be very stressful to that long nerve that goes around the elbow. Well, that's well stated, and the limbs don't want to be twisted. Again, crocodiles have been around 35 million years with their palms firmly planted in the swamp. We became bipedal, upright, uh, two-legged humans with free hands to swing through a natural arc of rotation. And if you look at the spiral swing of the upper limb, it's a cross-section Fibonacci sequence of the spirals of a seashell. And so... Once we transgress that and we start to twist limbs in the wrong positions, we're going to have fibromuscular challenges of potential dynamic entrapment of nerves. And once you've spent a lifetime studying and bedtime reading on normal anatomy, you go into all the possible anatomical variations and realize that we're not we're not set up for sustained twisting of body parts. So if you go into a theater, sit with your shoulder blades against the chair, and they show the movie on the left side of the theater and you keep mm-hmm. your head turned left for an hour and a half, how will you feel the next day? And then you go back for more days and then for 50 years of work. And so you decide, gee, the neck wasn't made to be twisted. The limbs are not made to be twisted. How will we do when we make improper use of muscle tendon units and nerves going through fibrous channels? It's quite a question, and I actually knew someone who had that exact problem. Their monitor was off to the left, and they had tremendous neck pain. Went to the doctor and got a very strong drug, very strong, uh, I think it was an NSAID, that could do you know, great damage to your stomach and everything else. And all this person had to do was move their monitor and center it and also do some neck, you know, turn your head occasionally um, in the normal range of motion. They, there was not a need for a strong drug, um, and it's no, too bad. No, because these things are a concatenation and and uh, domino effect of, of bad things. Because you take a nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory medication to excess, and it starts to hurt the stomach. Then they give you some acid blocker, proton pump inhibitor, prilosec, uh, omeprazole, 
and that immediately starts to deplete absorption of vitamin D, B6, B12, C, and A. And then suddenly you're not absorbing vitamins, your vitamin levels drop to the basement, all in service to a quickly written prescription that did not attend to ergonomics and teaching a person proper use of self, form, function, fit, and failure of avoidance. And so all these things back up to an understanding of how to be the good steward of your three trillion cells, 86 billion in the brain, one plus trillion synapses knitting brain cells together centrally, and uh, lucky if you can work safely and lucky if you can cross the street safely. Yes, but, you know, with all these injuries, um, I think the thing that people don't know um, when they get injured is they think it's like a broken bone or a cold or something that's going to go away in a few weeks. And nerve injuries are typically not like that. Um, Can you talk a little bit about why they're so slow to heal? Well, you're healing long cells. I mean, if you look at the spinal cord and the cell body and then you look out at the end of a a nerve out in the fingertip, I mean, these are almost three feet long, two and a half, three feet long, and it's a, a system, a very long cell in the body that has to regenerate everywhere from the nucleus to the myelin, which is the insulation. So if you have a copper wire, it's insulated with plastic. If you have a nerve, it's insulated with myelin, the biologic insulator for nerve conduction and all the potential points of entrapment along these long cells. It takes a while. And so, uh, and again, this this is going to involve the multifactorial aspect of a compulsively complete examination, addressing any and all possible ergonomic refinements that could accelerate healing, looking at metabolism, looking at endocrinology, simple blood testing, and then figuring out whether a person is sufficiently verbal to substitute voice for upper limbs, because you never assume that successful treatment is going to let themselves subject to the same way of doing things. But nerves are notoriously slow to heal because uh, these are very long cells, the metabolism is, metabolism is very complex, dependent on the metabolic machine, endocrinology, temperature, cold nerves. There's a steep nonlinear drop-off in nerve conduction velocity with tissue cooling. We've learned that from frostbite. And so cool-handed, cool upper limb patients, the, the, it, it's tough. I mean, it's tough to heal them. They learn by biofeedback, autogenic self-hand warming, so that at least they have a fighting chance for these temperature-dependent structures. And then all the points of potential entrapment along the way from brain to fingertips are on the table. We mentioned that before, Dr. Markison. You mentioned double and treble, triple crush. And can we explain about the idea of a crush being a place where the nerve is compressed? So typically that could be um, at the brachial plexus, the elbow, and the wrist. Those are three places I think you could... Uh, that would be a triple crush, right? And then yeah, a double crush could be right, the elbow. We, right. We haven't mentioned en route to the carpal tunnel, hence the need for detailed examination, that there are multiple potential points of entrapment of the median nerve, like median strip on a mm-hmm. highway going down the center line of the, the palm surface of the forearm, wrist, and hand. But you have to consider that there could be, as in a case, operation I had to do a few weeks ago for the lady who diagnosed, quote, carpal tunnel syndrome, never adequately examined. And I put on the brakes a second opinion in a work comp claim saying, I don't see evidence that they really checked above elbow, at elbow, in forearm, through forearm, 
before coming to conclusion carpal tunnel release alone would be adequate. So she had obvious entrapment at four levels of median nerve. Oh, my gosh. Asthertis, fibrosis, pronator, superficialis arcade, all before you get to carpal tunnel, plus carpal tunnel. And so in the OR, and I do things under local with sedation as much as I can, sometimes regional blocks, and I'd like to have the patient comfortably interact with me, a little sedation, but consciously move this, move that, so I can see dynamic anatomy, dynamic entrapment, flex the elbow, turn your forearm over, and so on. So we're in there, obvious entrapment at all four levels, so carpal tunnel alone would have been inadequate, uh, the release of that alone. So multiple entrapments within a given passage of a nerve somewhere between above elbow, elbow, forearm, and wrist carpal tunnel. So that's that's just one piece of the puzzle, but the puzzle continues as you consider neck. Then you consider brachial plexus beneath anterior scalene, which is a strap muscle at the base of the neck, and or pectoralis minor, which is a chest wall muscle near the shoulder. And plexus can be trapped above, behind the collarbone, below the collarbone, and they're almost 40 anatomical variations of brachial plexus with infinity in between. You're checking all of this stuff and and seeing. So neck, crush number one. Plexus, crush number two. Crush number three plus would be upper limb level difficulties. Again, cubital tunnel, I mentioned elbow level ulnar nerve compression. But if you have ulnar tunnel syndrome at the wrist and you release cubital only and you've got bona fide electrodiagnostically confirmed, wrist level, you'll get a partial or maybe no success from the elbow-only procedure, same, as I said, with median, same with radial. If somebody's unschooled in the multi-level entrapments of the radial nerve, then you'll get a so-so result. And again, everybody blames the patient when it doesn't work out. It's often the examiner's time crush and or lack of knowledge base uh, and or time, just this time craze, craziness where got to figure it out in 10 minutes or you as a medical practitioner are flogged by higher powers. So the, the real deal is to consider that it could be a multi-level crush, and it doesn't mean game over, digs up, no way to get, you know, to do it, fix it, but you, you really have to examine every single patient unbelievably carefully and maybe repeatedly. Yes. Yes, that's, that's incredibly important information for people to hear, especially if they're planning a surgery. Uh, without having right. sought a, an expert second opinion about it. So right. And this, again, this isn't a sandwich <laughs> sign for me as the Uber expert because I believe that any board-certified hand surgeon has maintained his or her certification and studies daily normal and abnormal anatomy is fit, ready, and worthy of doing these things, surgically or non-surgically. Yes. But it sounds to me from what you're saying like, there's really no quick fix. Uh, the nerve heals in its own time when it's um, held in a, you know, when it's not constantly re-stressed and re-injured by, you know, straining it. Um, but there's no magic bullet. There's no special drug that people can take to heal their nerves. It's really a question of time and, and taking good care of your uh, neutral posture and not further or re-injuring yourself. Yes, but again, never forget metabolic and endocrine um, aspects, the backdrop in which we all live, because a little vitamin D deficiency can ruin you. A little bit of high uric acid can ruin you. High glucose can ruin you. These are all things that are somewhat controllable, and so you want to make Mm -hmm. sure 
that that you've been fine-tooth combed without drawing all the blood out to really, really figure out this stuff. But let's go on the, the positive, bright, sunny side of the street for a moment. Good old carpal tunnel syndrome without significant thenar wasting uh, can be one of the miracle cures, just like appendectomy for appendicitis. And so it's not a gloomy picture. Uh, mm-hmm. And assuming you've got a board-certified hand surgeon who's operating on you, plenty of experience, lots of track record, cares about patients, long-term follow-up, you're going to do great. You're going to do very well. It doesn't absolutely guarantee 12 hours a day writing code on a computer again, but you're you're going to do great. And so the, the you have to have a positive, optimistic spin to avoid a psychophysical tailspin. I think, yeah, and that's it's hard to maintain a positive um, mindset if your hands aren't working the way that you expect them to. So I think that's an important thing for people to, you know, really hold on to that north star of optimism mm-hmm. that there is definitely hope and Absolutely. you can get better. You can get better. Um, so before we leave, um, let me know if there's anything else you want to say and also tell us where we can find you. Where is your website? How can we get a oh, hold of you? Oh, I appreciate that. And again, I'm not advertising me. I've got a very full international practice, and a lot of them are creatives and musicians, and they require tons of time because it's redesign of musical instruments to prevent or accommodate strain, which is many hours of work to redesign a clarinet or whatever it is. But having said that, it's www.markisonmd.com. And... Um, I'm interested in helping people, but oftentimes they have local or not too far away resources of people who've dedicated life to limb who can help them out. So they want a board-certified person. Board-certified hand surgeon. And those boards are granted with some difficulty, by the way. They're not simple. There's at least 3,000 currently board-certified hand surgeons in America. But the point is that uh, American Board of Orthopedic Surgery, American Board of Plastic Surgery, American Board of Surgery, are the three granting for U.S. and Canada uh, boards that can give Great. you the Certificate of Attic, Added Qualification in Surgery of the Hand, C-A-Q-S-H. And that's okay. a precious certificate because it, if you hold that and you're, that means you're board certified in hand surgery, then it means you do care. All right. Well, thank you for coming on to the show, Dr. Markison. We've really enjoyed sure. having you. We hope to have you many more times. And thank everybody for listening to RSI Help Radio. And please uh, follow the show by clicking the red button on the show page so that you will be notified of future episodes. Until next time, this is Deborah Quilter signing off from RSI Help Radio. Bye.